1: Happy Tuesday, everybody! Today is August eight, two thousand and twenty-three. Today's episode is three hundred and sixteen. I am your host, Aaron Blasey. and with me, as always, Mister DJ Riley. What is happening, man? Uh, before, before we get, before you answer that, I feel like I do this to you every week. Um, you know, we recorded we're working class last night, as you know, we're recording this intro. So that podcast will be going live in two weeks, I believe, dude. I don't know about you, but I had a headache this morning. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Dude, I, I actually felt good, you know, but I, I also like, I think you, you had a few more drinks than I did because I, I knew I had to drive home. So, you know, I, I, the few beers I had, I kind of spread it out and I cut it off a little bit early, but yeah, I, I actually, I feel good today, buddy. I'm, I'm good to go.
1: Yeah. I feel good now, but I'll tell you what, this morning it took four ibuprofen to get me back in a check. So I'll tell you that, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's easier. I mean, like you said you were driving a little ways, you know, yep. late at night. So you had, you know, a cocktail or two, but like I, I, yeah, I did,
2: it got a little aggressive, I think. <laughs> <laughs> good times, man. It's, it's easy yeah. to, it, it's, it's very easy to do, especially when you're, you know, we're podcasting but we're really just shooting the shit with buddies you know what i mean yep. and you get in all of us we all love deer hunting and, and archery hunting so it's like you you can just get tied right up into it and you know one hour turns into four and four turns into seven it seems like so
1: yep for sure well hey let's uh let's rip off some partners here real quick and then we'll get into this intro then get right into the podcast so uh everybody the the fall podcast website we have the website still up and running there's still merch on the website go to fallpodcast.com Check out the hats, the hoodies, the shirts, and uh, look at the, you know, the videos that are on there. You can even listen to the podcast through the website. So please go do that. We're um, working with a designer here soon about doing some more hat designs and everything like that. So maybe something on the brink for this fall, maybe a little hunt hat action or something. So we'll, we're definitely going to go down that path. So do that. And uh, also if you guys are looking to get into some new gear, uh, mobile gear, as far as like you know sticks stand or sticks uh platforms saddles ropes uh carabiners you know kong ducks you know anything like that we offer it at latitude outdoors and you can use the code thefallpodcast to save money right now so go do that go to latitudeoutdoors.com save some money on your next purchase for your mobile gear also go to latitude's youtube channel and uh this week will be episode four of grit on youtube so we've we've dropped three but this friday we're gonna be dropping episode four and it is a banger and i know it's a banger because i edit it so <laughs> uh you need to go there check it out it's gonna drop i believe at 5 p.m eastern on uh on youtube so go check that out next helix broadheads use the code fall hx 10 to get yourself some single bevel either fj2 or fj4 with the bleeders the new ones um the penetration, accuracy, dependability. Hey, what was the, what was the little uh, blurb I showed you last night when we were podcasting? Remember, a listener he bought the Helix FJ4s, and he he puts a picture up and he sends it to me, and he goes, "The arrow to the right that was like eight inches to the right." He's like, "That's my field point," and he goes, "Uh, I think he said something about uh, I should probably just go look at it." To be honest with you, <laughs> let's just let's, let's just read it here.
2: I know he um, he bought the one with the uh, FJ4 on it though.
1: Yeah, he said first shot ever with the FJ4, 30 yards. The one on the right is a field tip, and I didn't want to shoot next to the first one, so he didn't want to like ruin mm-hmm. that arrow. So that's what he was doing. He goes, "You were right, sir. They fly as ad they fly as advertised. Thank you for doing what you do, dude. That is greatly appreciated." and uh super cool that he reached out but i'm gonna tell you i wish i could put this picture up but that fj4 is literally dead nuts right oh, yeah. in the middle hell it's of a, great, a shot so great
2: shot great shot
1: yep yeah so i mean i'm literally i'm i'm being serious like when you shoot these things there you're not gonna have to adjust anything if 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 your bow is tuned the way it should be tuned yep 100% agree with that so yeah, go to uh, helixbroadheads.com. Use the code FALLHX10. Get you some new broadheads. Get them coming now because uh, you know a lot of orders are coming through. I do know that, and uh, you know you might not get them on a timely fashion. I think you can get them, you know, within a couple of days. But uh, you know, the closer we get to fall, it's just a, it's just
2: you know, it's a trickle effect. Everybody's mm-hmm. like, oh
1: shit, I got to get this. I got to get that. You know, mm-hmm. so just get them now.
2: Yeah, we we talked about that months ago you know, be ahead of the game with all this stuff, you know, and I get it. It's easy to put off because it's only summertime and hunting season's a few months away this So that, well, guess what? It's August 8th hunting season for a lot of people is it's going to start at the end of this month. So I hope that everyone's yep. got this stuff ready.
1: For sure. Uh, next Exodus outdoor gear, use the code T F. So it stands for the fall. Use the code T F to save some money at ExodusOutdoorgear.com on your next purchase. They have a five-year no BS warranty with theft and damage coverage on the rival and render cameras. They're doing the hashtag VelvetFest right now. So any social post or anything like that, hashtag VelvetFest on those pictures. And uh, it's a really cool campaign that they do every year. But if you guys are looking for a new cell cam, go check those out. And they've got, uh, I'm trying to think here. Oh, the newsletter. That's what I wanted to say go there sign up for the newsletter so you can stay in contact with them immediately when something drops you go you'll be the first one to know if you do that so go to exodusoutdoorgear.com use the code tf to save some money next garmin garmin a1 a1i or the a1i pro bow sight and the watches they're built to last they build your confidence the sights you just build your confidence in the moment of truth and they just in my opinion make you a better shot cuz they they just kind of eliminate a step of the process which is always good when we're out there hunting these deer i think you owe it to the animal to simplify your process as much as possible to give you more confidence to make that ethical shot as best you can so the garmin will do that it helps you out it does did for me anyway and i think you and i've been talking i think you you haven't shot a deer with one yet but just in the yard i think you've built your confidence haven't you
2: oh i i Aaron, I am itching bad to shoot. <laughs> I want to shoot a deer with it. Really, that between that and the FJ4 broadheads, you know, I I want to see that first that first kill go under my belt with it. I uh, I I'm itching bad, man. But no, it's, yeah. it's 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 so odd. The the part that was always you know like changing my mind over is how quickly I can just grab my bow and go shoot. There's I can stand wherever I want. I can arrange that instantly. I'm shooting like it's It's almost like half the amount of time now,
1: yeah, for sure. so go check them out at Garmin.com or go to your local garmin dealer if you have one near you. check those both sites out and even tell them that you heard about it on the fall podcast. That'd be greatly appreciated. uh next Buck bourbon. so now is the time to get your fall plots in everybody. I should be probably preaching what or you know doing what I preach because I haven't got my fall plots in yet, but I will tell you. I will be planting them next week because they are sprayed, they're getting worked up, and we're going to be putting them down. So Buck Bourbon offers a line of food plot seed. They also have rack house, ground blinds. So if you're looking for a really good ground blind as well, go to buckbourbon.com. Use the code TFP20. They have a ton of other stuff on their website as well. You can get seasonings. You can even get supplemental feed. We can't do it here in Michigan, but you can go there and buy um, attractants. You can buy mineral anything like that. And the really, the origin store is really cool. And I'm going to get George, the owner on here soon. We're both going to have, uh, interview him. George is a really good dude in, in the, the name speaks for itself. It's like Buck bourbon. He's taken, you know, stuff from bourbon. He's from Kentucky. He's taken stuff from bourbon and, and made these products with. So it's really neat how the whole origin story came about. And uh, that'll be coming soon. I actually just reminded myself that I have to get that scheduled. So we're going to do that soon. But, uh, Go to BuckBourbon.com. Use code TFP20 to save some money on your next purchase. And the last two, but certainly not least, Prime Prime Archery, G5Prime.com. Go check out the revx 2 and all their bows and the accessories that they offer. Tell them the Fall Podcast sent you. And uh, lastly, America's Best Bow Strings. Go to America'sBestBowStrings.com. Use the code THEFALL to get yourself a new string. I can tell you this right now. Uh, I just talked to Bryant at ABB, and it is. I think they're two weeks out on strings right now. So if you need a string right now, mm-hmm. you need to get your order in. You need to because everybody does it last minute. We just talked about it. Get your order in now and use the code the fall to save you a little bit of money. So that's keeping the lights on with the with the intro or with the uh, sponsors there. So a little bit about today's podcast. Do you want to start this off because You, you brought this guy Mm -hmm. to the podcast and, and boy, I'm glad you did because he's someone that, uh, you know, we've been kind of going down this, uh, diamond in the rough guys. I don't even know if that's the right word for it, but what I'm saying is like the guys that the underground guys, that's what we'll call them. The underground guys, the guys that you don't hear much about, but have unbelievable trophy rooms. And I'm not even talking like just the sheer size of the animals. I'm just talking about the quantity. Like Mm -hmm. he's got quantity and quality, but the dude goes wherever he goes and he just can get it done. And that's the coolest thing about it. So kind of kick us off. Who do we got this week?
2: Yeah. On today's episode, you're going to hear from a guy. um, His name is Josh Beeman. And I go back with Josh, you know, a decade or so, maybe even 12 years ago, um, kind of back before like social media was just Facebook and Instagram. It was, it came from hunting forums. And I, I met Josh back on the hunting beast forums, you know, like I said, a dozen years ago, basically. And Aaron kind of nailed it perfectly about Josh is, you know, you may not hear from Josh on every podcast platform there is out there or YouTube channels, but he's, he is a bit underground, but on top of being underground, he's been doing this for decades and his wall proves that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you, you also nailed it. Like the guy, you know, I, you know, just off of thinking, we're talking. He's been north of the border in Canada, Wisconsin, the Dakotas, velvet deer, Iowa. He's he's done it all. He's killed he's killed the highest caliber of deer in every place that he's pretty much hunted. And there there is one stat though that I do want to bring up that I don't think we actually got recorded because a lot of times what people don't see is. We record with these guests, and then like we we naturally just keep the conversation going for weeks afterwards, and in months, mm-hmm. and they become friendships with them. But we got talking to Josh off record about something about the percentage of bucks he's killed on the on his wall, and there's a lot. Like I I think he's thirty thirty plus bucks that are probably one thirty or bigger on the wall. And I also know, and you'll hear him talk about it in the podcast. He's he's a really really avid shed hunter, and I think maybe even part of his story talks about like shed hunting was one of his first passions when he first got into hunting the the bigger caliber bucks in his area that Josh has on his wall about fifty percent of those bucks he has a year, if not more sheds worth of history for, and i I find that's that wild. yeah, and i and i and I know someone say what someone may say, well, that's only. 50 or 60 percent. Well, that's a lot because I want everyone like when you listen to this, think how many of the deer you have on your wall and how many sheds you have off of them. Because I I, I can tell you right now, mine's zero. I like all of the all the deer that are my wall, at least that I can think of. I don't have sheds at any of those. So that's that's a hard that's a hard thing to do. And I have, you know, me and you have talked about like we're a sucker for stories and. I have always found it very interesting. I think it's maybe at the very top for me of guys that have history with a deer for multiple years and then catch up to them and kill that animal. Like, I think there's something very special and unique about those kind of stories. What did, uh, I mean, you got to meet him. That was kind of your first day meeting him, Aaron. I mean, what was, what was your take on him?
1: Um, my take on him was humble. First take was Humble uh very much a family man has his priorities straight Mm -hmm. and he is a no quit type of guy like he is going to grind and grind and grind until he achieves his goal Mm -hmm. and his confidence now he's got a confidence that some people might be like well that guy's just cocky no that's it comes across as that maybe but his confidence you have to have that type of confidence to be successful like he is, you know what I mean? And that just doesn't come overnight. That comes with a lot of, uh, years of experience and different, uh, situations that he's put himself in and learning. Like that's where that confidence comes from. Um, and to go to back to like the shed, you know, the percentage in the shed you talk about, you know, I have 12 bucks on the wall and I only have a shed off of one of those deer. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to do you one better. So I've got 12 bucks on the wall and, um, uh, let me think here. I got to count again. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine of the 12. I do not even have a trail cam picture or video or anything from. Mm-hmm. So like, think about that. Yeah. Like only nine so only three of the bucks on my wall, I even have a physically have a trail cam picture from like that to me is like, yeah. that's a crazy stat. I've never thought of it that way. Cause I'm trying to put it into perspective. Like there's some people that just don't shed hunt and some people that just don't find a lot of sheds like mm-hmm. myself and put into perspective, like really go think, you know, I, I run a few cameras. I don't run a ton, but yeah, there's only, only nine or only three of them on my wall that I actually have a picture from.
2: Yeah, yeah, and let, let's, let I'm going to use this as a point here to hit on. Josh is one of those guys, now we, we've, we got to talk to him about the buck he's after this year, you know, and he showed us, and it's, I mean, it's a freaking stud. He is one of those guys that, like, when he shows you the deer he's after this year that's finally made of age or antler caliber, like, I feel bad for that deer because like <laughs> you know what i mean like there there's guys out there when they're like this is the deer i'm hunting this year where it's like yeah that, that deer's that deer's got issues he's got issues coming in october november this year december maybe too who knows but it's yeah. uh, josh is a killer no doubt he is an absolute killer and like you said beautiful beautiful man cave there at his place Yep.
1: He is very much a killer and a humble guy at mm-hmm. that as well. So we're going to uh, we're gonna shift over to this interview with Josh because I just want to let it rip because it's a good one. Thank you guys for all the support and all the downloads. Go to iTunes, leave a five-star rating, and leave a written review. Please also do it on Spotify and tell a friend about the podcast because that would be greatly appreciated. And here is this interview with Mr. Josh Beeman. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Fall Podcast, and today we've got a special guest on, Mr. Josh Beeman. Josh. Thanks for coming on today, man, and taking the time tonight to to chit chat with
3: us. Yeah, no problem, guys. Look forward to it.
1: I am as well, you know. And it's, uh, you know, you have well DJ and I are going down this little this little rabbit hole, and and we've kind of filled you in a little bit of like the guys that are kind of like the. Uh, you know, doing things on a very high level, but just might not be in the in the forefront or the face of everyone like in the content world. And I feel like you fall right into that. You like you you are an elite, elite whitetail hunter, in my opinion. And I think DJ as well. So I am very excited to talk to you today because I'm just ready to pick your brain because you come from an area a lot like what DJ and I grew up in as far as kind of the same kind of philosophies and everything. And, and you're pulling out the 1% deer wherever you go. And I think that's the coolest thing ever, really.
3: Yeah. I've, uh, I mean, I've been hunting, um, you know, we get into it, but I've been hunting for almost three decades now. Um, started off with small game, uh, hunting with my grandfather mostly. And then, you know, my brother, uh, small kids and we hunted rabbits and everything. And that just progressed and, Uh, whitetail hunting has always been a huge passion of mine i really i really enjoy it i really enjoy spending the time outdoors and uh the one thing about deer is there uh you got to pay attention to so many different details and i think that's what what i like about it the most is the more you put into it the more you get out of it
2: yeah I, i i tell you that tell you what that is one thing that i i hear consistently about some of the the top end killers is you know the fact that the smallest details sometimes kill, like, the biggest animals. And I'm sure that has to do with more than just whitetails. You know, I'm sure the guys that are really good at, you know, elk hunting and, you know, even maybe waterfall hunting or whatever the case may be is, like, the guys that are paying attention to the smallest details. Detail-oriented, you know, hunters, man. They, they, seem, to, they seem to always be maybe a step above a lot of people that are around them also.
1: Now, Josh, you know, you, you said you, you've been hunting for about three decades now, and you started at a very young age. Now let's, let's start from ground zero here. When you, you know, you it was probably 10, 11, 12 years old when you started a lot like, you know, DJ and I. So when you were, let's say 12 years old and starting. You know, what what were the philosophies and, and who were teaching you how to hunt and in and, and the in the ropes, if you will say, like what were those kind of bylaws or the rules or like what you're supposed to chase? Like what did that look like back then, if you can remember?
3: Yeah, so uh it was uh early like nineteen nineties. I'm forty three years old now, so born in eighty. I started hunting deer, probably I think I was about ten years old. I started going with my dad uh it was traditional Wisconsin deer camp. Um, we hunted with a buddy of my dad's. who had a really nice chunk of land. Um, still owns it. and It was a good mix of, uh, it had uh, upland, like rolling rolling hills, gently rolling hills, and it had some lower ground and some pine plantation in between with some crops. So it was really, really diverse property. And uh, back in the 90s, it was just, uh, you know, if, if you could shoot a buck, that was, that was big time, you know, uh, just, I remember like basket racks were really celebrated initially in camp. And then I think it was probably a couple years later, like the QDM thing started and uh, started going for, I would say, you know, that, that 16 inch spread minimum. So that was, you know, essentially we were targeting, I didn't know it at the time, but like probably two-year-old deer, maybe a, a three-year-old would really be a trophy. Like if you shot 130 class deer, back in the nineties, I would say that was, that was a head turner, you know? Yeah, uh, And, and most of these were preset stands that had been hunted for years. I mean, we'd move some stuff around and we had some, some small towers for gun season and, uh, but most of them were just, uh, you know, shorter ladder stands or hang ons that were, you know, 12 to 15 feet up. Some of them were homemade and uh, they were dispersed throughout the property and you just kind of, kind of pick one, like, you know, some of the older hunters maybe understood wind, you know, a little bit better and they they would be picking those stands based on wind. But I was just going to the swamp stand just because I knew, you know, I was probably going to see some deer or at least see some kind of activity or, you know, going to the pine plantation stand or, you know, on the clover field or whatever. Um, but it was mostly just, you know predetermined sets and you know just picking one and hoping that you know your card got drawn and a nice buck would come by and you get a shot
2: josh when when you think back about those early days like that and getting the chance to kind of grow up and and cut your teeth hunting such a diverse property can you remember back of like was there any you know specific type of terrain or vegetation back then that you thought like man it seems like i see a lot more deer over in the swamp compared to the pines or you know whatever the case may be
3: yeah so it was always thicker the better back then um you know like it was a cedar swamp and it it got wet in certain spots but uh mostly just hunting the edges of it you know we never really because it was like a sanctuary you didn't want to really plow back in there and um like i said those first and i bull hunted a lot from 12 to uh 16 any any chance i could go and then once i got my license like then driver's license and I was bull hunting even, even more. I would, I would bull hunt probably just about every day, you know, in the evenings. (laughs) Um, and I just, I think in the beginning, a lot of it was just learning how to move, you know, move on an animal, um, maybe get drawn stuff like that. The small stuff, just observing deer behavior over many, many years, kind of, you start to understand, maybe some of the vocalizations and like some of the movements of the deer to understand what kind of, you know, are they, are they alert? Are they, you know, spooky? Are they calm? Like, you know, like, like a lay person would not know that, you know, looking at a deer, but after you've hunted them for a very long time, you can can completely tell the attitude of a, you know, a deer that's coming in.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Now, when, when did you kind of start making that transition or, or maybe even show an interest about, you know, hunting, you know, a little bit bigger bucks or a more mature age class?
3: Yeah. So I would say like we had that QDM and I had my chances at some two and three year old deer and I botched a lot of them just getting excited or, uh, you know, shoot a lot of time shooting over the back, I think, you know, and just get kind of excited on a deer and you, you don't get many opportunities, maybe one a year, um. And then I would say probably about the time that I went to college. Um, so I was 18, 19 years old, right around there down in Madison. And uh, I had some, some roommates that I got to know at the time that were also into hunting. And we kind of started like exploring outside of Madison and the surrounding areas there. And a little bit better quality deer in southern Wisconsin and those rolling hills. Like there was a better, at the, at the time, there was a better age class of animals so I started seeing more big deer and then uh, I made it a specific goal my I think it was my sophomore fall that I wasn't going to shoot anything small anymore it was going to be going to be really big so I think I spent 14 days straight um, end of October into November hunting every day morning and night. While I was in college <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's awesome like going into that 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 mindset when you were getting ready to flip that switch up to that point like what was like the biggest deer you had been on and maybe killed at that point
3: I would say probably maybe like 110 inch two year- old okay I shot, okay I'd shot at some 120 to 130 class animals and botched it I hit one in the shoulder. And, uh, I think I, I, maybe shot over the back of another one that was back, back home towards, you know, central Wisconsin. Yeah. I was, I guess... yeah, I was just seeing, uh, you know, shining was allowed at the time and I was able to, uh, you know, shine in the evenings and just see, you know, some really 140, 150 class animals that I hadn't really seen frequently back home.
1: Yeah. You know, a lot of hunters, I think have that, have that difficult time being or saying like, Hey, you know, I'm at, I'm at a certain point right here and I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to up the ante and I'm only going to kill a certain caliber of deer. And it's, and then, you know, it, it could be like, I'm not, I'm going to pass the one tens and one twenties. I'm not going to shoot anything until out to one thirty, but maybe they've never killed one like that. How, how was that mindset? Was that pretty difficult for you knowing that you hadn't killed one yet? And you're just, you know, maybe you haven't killed, you know, enough of those other deer to really get you like climb that ladder to that point. Like you're like, how, how was that mindset? Like getting over that?
3: I think at that point I'd shot probably double digits, you know, pretty, pretty close to, you know, a good handful plus a bucks with a bow. Okay. Um, yeah. I'd shot many, many does too. Cause we were encouraged with Q- QDM to shoot, shoot does. So I had a lot of practice actually shooting deer, um, with, with archery equipment, um, it was just the mindset, you know, like not, not giving in and, you know, taking that acceptable buck, like going for something that was, that was a little bit bigger. Um, and yeah, I, I, I uh, like at that time too, I started, you know, the, the internet was starting to be available or readings were starting to be available, um uh, Mapping Trophy Whitetails. I've mentioned this in other popca- podcasts. It's a book about like reading topography, like, uh, you know, different, different funnels that you'll find in hilly, hilly areas. Um, it's by Brad Heardon, I believe is how you say his name. Um, and that book is really good. It, it shows you many different, um, like kind of hillside, hillside funnels, like, uh, saddles, um, you know, converging points, things like that, inside corners, all this stuff. So I started more focusing on topography and hills too, and not so much edge hunting or food hunting. And, uh, you know, um, and at that, you know, prior to that, maybe you focus too much on like just looking at trails and things like that. But when you start putting topography in in with those pieces, I think uh, things start to make sense. And then after a while, you start to figure out how the whitetails are using the wind. And then that's a, that's a whole nother game changer. I think once you get to that topography and then understanding how the deer is using the wind in the topography, and then you can put yourself in the right spot. I think that's, that's when things start to really come together.
2: Yeah. I, I would recommend that book for anyone, even, even if, even if you think you're kind of far along in, in your whitetail journey nowadays, like that book, that book is so phenomenal to read. And even for, even for someone like me, you know, like I can remember getting my hands on it, even though like most of the stuff I hunt is flat, but like it, it will teach you a lot, you know? Now, Josh, when you went off to college and you talked about the roommates in that you guys were starting to venture out and see bigger deer. Now were your roommates used to kind of bigger deer where they came from, or did they kind of come from what you did?
3: Yeah, they came from, uh, like Eastern, Wisconsin, but they they came from an area that's pretty good for whitetails. It's a mm-hmm. our suburb of Milwaukee, but way north. It's towards Slinger. Um, and uh they had one of them had shot like a hundred and forty-five inch buck. And then the other one, um, he had shot some like 120, 130 class deer and uh actually shot a really big one while we were in college together. I think it was pushing 160. Um, but they, them guys walked a lot. Like they did a lot of hiking and, uh, shed antler hunting. And, um, I'd never really, to this point in my life, like went out and looked specifically for sheds. And I think that's another, um, key piece. If somebody wants to really kind of up their game a little bit is spend, spend that time in the winter, like from January to uh, March, at least in Wisconsin, um, like walking a lot. I think you'll learn a lot about like how deer, you know, use topography where the beds are that, that, that can change with cold weather and, uh, you know, extreme conditions. But if you can get out there right after season and start kind of just walking trails and, uh, it'll give you a real feel of how they use topography to kind of traverse and things, things will start, you know, kind of making sense a little bit better.
2: Yeah. I can imagine what you were thinking at that time, because I can remember, you know, for me a decade ago when i was kind of reading or, or even watching guys that were were shed hunting and then they were they're finding a shed and then later on in the story they they had find that deer that following year and i just you know watching guys go out there in the off season and walk it was like what the hell are these guys doing you know but boy when i started to get out there in the off season i i feel like i've learned more in the off seasons ever than what I do during the season sometimes, you know, or it's like, I, and I I bet you that was the same thing for you. You know, like you're watching these, you know, your roommates that they're going out there and bringing these deer antlers back and you're like, what is he, that's not even deer season. What are you guys doing?
0: It's only a kick, (laughs) a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the
1: fans.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, quickly winners quickly switch from like most, you know, ice fishing and things like that to, uh, definitely a lot of, a lot of walking. I just spent college gave me the freedom. It gave me the time. Um, you know, like, like, I don't, you know, if people have been to university, like you got maybe 10 or 15 hours of class per week, and then you got maybe a lab or two or whatever. So you got like 20 hours tied up the rest of the time is kind of free time um, if you don't have to work and I just took advantage of it and spent man I spent a lot of time in the woods you know for those four years and I think and even prior to that I spent a lot of time in the woods but like that four years was like obsessive amounts of time
2: yeah yeah. Oh. Do you, is it safe to say that you look back at those four years and they were like they were so important though to kind of your, your whitetail game now
3: I would say so. And then at the same time, like uh, you know, it was uh Dan Infault and the Blood Brother videos and they started talking about, you know, specifically finding buck beds and hunting them in close quarters and I don't think I've ever like you know, like the the guys that are hunting strictly public land that have to be super aggressive and hunt, you know, within sight of a, a bed to get, to get a shot. I wouldn't say that I'm that aggressive because I you know, I have probably better quality land to hunt, but I do pay a lot of attention to where I think core buck bedding areas are. And what i found over the years is a lot of times, once you kill a mature buck, there's a pretty good chance that there's enough of them in the area, there's going to be another one that's going to be using the same location. Like it's, it's primo for a reason. A lot of times it's yeah. to pop.
2: Yeah, I, I, I agree with that big time. Do you, do you see a lot of that up there by you, Aaron, that same kind of scenario?
1: Yeah. It, you know, the only kicker is, is in our area, like a mature buck is not a three-year-old to me, but if you're talking like that, that is our top 10% of the bucks. Like we're getting three-year-olds. If we can kill a four-year-old, that's an anomaly around us, you know? So we're getting three-year-olds that are, that are poping young or, you know, even into the 140s, which are, are great deer. But if you could, our hunter density is so, so strong around here that, you know, I don't see a ton of, um, you know, I see tendencies, but I don't see like a a pattern that is very much carbon copy from year to year, just because of the pressure and the, the hunter density. So it's very much like, I almost feel like every year that I go into an off season, uh, you know, if I've hunted a, a farm year over year, every time I go in an off season, I, it's almost like a clean slate and I got to figure it out again. Like, you know, that's for for big, big timber for me. But now in my ag ground with open flat stuff, there, it is a lot more predictable there. It, I, can, I can hunt windows. I can hunt uh, historical data a lot more, um, you know, and, and I hunt more surgical rather than more aggressive if that makes sense. Do you see that a lot Josh in those those two different scenarios?
3: Oh, I would say like that time in college, you know, that was mostly all public access. Um, you know, in and around Madison to the west and to the north. Um and it was it was a lot harder obviously, you know, to uh but at the time I think I shot the first one that I spent like those 13 or 14 days straight. That one was a really nice, I would say, at least 4-year-old uh, 10 pointer that was, you know, mid one forties was the first big one that I got. And then after you get that first big one, you know, that, that feeling of accomplishment or whatever you want to call it, just, just fueled the fire even more. Cause then it's like, I just did it. I focused, I made it a goal. I did it. Now let's do it again. And then I want to prove to everybody I can do it every year for a string of years. You know, like, it's not just like most people kill a big buck and people will be like, well, that, you know, it's a fluke. But if you kill them 10 years in a row um, and and sometimes, you know, multiple in a year, then people start to think, you know, maybe, maybe they do know what they're doing. Um, Yeah. And then, and then after a while, like, so, so that was the initial, like young Josh, like want to prove everybody that I, you know, that I'm a really good hunter. I think after a while it becomes more of a, you know, just appreciation for the animal, like. Now I'm, you know, I'm selecting maybe a specific animal or two, and then I just chase them all fall. And it would take a really big buck to kind of take me off course, you know. Yeah. With, I just like the chess match, kind of one on one. If I can do that, you know, if I have the opportunity to do that, in the right, the right land where I can make that work. Um, and then spending time now with my son, who's 15 years old, and you know, trying to teach him all the way, all the things that I've learned over over the years. Yeah. For sure.
2: Josh, Josh when you talk up when you talk about people like when you talked about that you were, you know, you killed that first buck and then you wanted to kill buck consistently because we've all seen the guy that, you know, kills one big buck and doesn't, you know, doesn't have much to show afterwards. What are what are a couple things that you think keeps guys from being consistent on some of the top tier bucks in their areas?
3: I would just say it's uh you know like anybody that's got a huge wall of boxes spent an enormous amount of time doing it it's it's just the way I mean Andy may it might be the anomaly there but uh, uh anybody else it's just it just takes a lot of time It's either time in January, February March it's time you know in sub- August or September or setting up your farm like they're just putting a lot of time resources into it um, to be consistent. You, you, even on good land, you know, to shoot a, a five-year-old buck consistently, like you got to do a lot of things right. Unless you're on like super, super good stuff. Um, yeah. So, so time is a big one. Um, we talked about that attention to detail. Uh, I would say like learn, just learning like situationally, like after being in the woods long enough, like when you know you're in a spot that is in the game for, you know, for a good buck, like you're seeing big buck sign or you're seeing... You know, a couple of ingredients within the topography that are all coming together, and it doesn't look like it's you know you can't see a four stands in the area or you know where somebody's cut brush or something like that on public land. So it you know kind of a a virgin area so to say, um, something something fresh that hasn't been beat up by other hunters, and that's getting a lot harder. Because I think there's a lot of information there on X now. There's uh, you know these podcasts there's books there's everything to put you know your everyday hunter right into gives them the ingredients if they put in the time to go out and find those things in the woods you know to be in the right spots yeah and i don't you, i don't think you it nailed was like it right there yeah back in the 90s i don't think like the early 90s i don't think it was as much yeah as much information so for sure it was more time, like the more time you spent, you know, you'd walk and walk and walk. And then all of a sudden you'd, you'd fall into one of these spots and you'd be like, man, there's a big buck here. I know it, you know? And then it's just a matter of hunting that location and, and getting lucky.
1: Yep. Yeah. You nailed it right there. Uh, there is, there is a little, a little blurb that you just said right there. Cause you, you mentioned like, books, podcasting, you know, YouTube, forums, everything's out there now. It's all right at your fingertips for free. You can you can you can learn it, you can listen to it, you can read it, whatever. But the kicker is you got to apply it and you got right. to put the time in. Like right. you just said that. So like you could listen to 500 hours of podcasting from the best podcaster from the in whoever that may be in the whitetail world but if you don't apply it and you don't figure out your system it will not work for you like right. it just you know it all comes down to time I, I like that answer that you had right there
3: and then and then there's uh also like you know how many people have you heard that finally get the opportunity and then they blow it just because it, it's their first big buck opportunity, you know, like, so you gotta, you gotta do it enough. You gotta maybe shoot some does. Like you gotta, you gotta get comfortable um, with, with whatever equipment, whether it be, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't belittle anybody for using a crossbow, a bow, a muzzle loader, whatever you want to do, but you got to practice with your weapon. And then when that moment of opportunity arises, you got to capitalize because they don't come sure. often. And I will say that's probably the one thing, like there's been a few misses and they really, those are the ones that I really remember, but the majority of the times that I had the opportunity, I capitalized Yeah. because I'd put it for, you know, practicing with whatever, whatever weapon that I was hunting with. So
2: yeah, you, you nailed it too, is because those opportunities, they just don't come often, you know, especially like when you're hunting, when you're hunting in like hard hunted places and. You know, most likely that opportunity comes once. If you're lucky, twice a year. Like you got to make those times count, you know. But for a lot of the listeners, when you just hear Josh talk about, you know, one of the keys to, you know, being successful each year, when he was talking about, you know, being able to go out there scouting and when you get into the area and identify those kind of areas that are like, yeah, this is it. This is where I need to be. Don't think that stuff happens overnight. I mean, this is, you know, I guarantee you, Josh is gonna tell you that this was from years of walking the woods from years of seeing what works and doesn't work. Like you, you have to get out there and do this shit because it's like, you know, like Aaron said, you could sit here and listen to all these podcasts, but if you don't go out there in the off season and actually apply this and learn it, it doesn't mean a thing. It does not mean a
3: thing. I'll say another, another big key is, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta be in an area that has, an animal that you're looking, you know, an animal class that you're looking for. So like, if you're in Michigan, like you guys said, like a three-year-old is going to be, you know, that's going to be a lot of places. That's going to be a top end buck, like a three-year-old buck, even in some heavily hunted parts of Wisconsin, like a three-year-old's a really, you know, that's a really good animal on public land. So you got to, you got to set your expectations for, for where you're at as well. Now, if you're going to get a, uh, you know, a five-year draw and maybe get into a, a low, a low hunter, you know, population zone in Iowa, or you're out in Kansas and you got a, you know, a chunk of land out there that's all to yourself. Like obviously, your standards can go way up if you're in the right areas, um, and you're just going to have more opportunities at older class deer. But if you're not in a good area, I encourage you to, you know, to step outside of it. And I know a lot of people there's there's financial resources that go along with that. But if you can get, you know, to a northern Missouri or Iowa or out to Kansas, even Western Illinois, um, the hunting is very different and it's a lot better probably than your high, high pressure areas in Michigan or, you know, in and around Wisconsin anyway. Yeah. yeah.
2: Now, Josh, you and I and Aaron, we've, we've kind of been talking, you know, off record about a couple different topics, this and that, and you brought something up that really caught my attention. And I think it'd play in really good right here, um, there in the story is that you know, you talked about when you're off at college and you kind of cut your teeth on a lot of public land, but you you credit about being able to find, you know, different different spots on even private land because of how you hunted public land. Why don't you break that down? You know, kind of your philosophy behind that now.
3: Yeah. So what I what I I've said this before on podcasts too. What I'm looking for is a uh, bigger tracts of land, uh, rural. Rural areas, if they exist in or around where you hunt. Um, I like to look for obstacles, meaning uh, water, um, maybe big wide open like CRP, you know, like a sea of CRP. That's very difficult to hunt, so that might get some age on your animals. Um, Big bluffs or topography that, you know, the majority of people just aren't gonna wanna hike up and down, you know, that's gonna separate a lot of people. You gotta be in a little bit better shape to do that, especially if you're carrying a stand. And, and you're required to pack things in and out, um, trying to think of other things. So, so, and then you gotta have like, just basically an area that, that has the, the kind of animal that you're looking to hunt. And then, uh, you know, I get in there and kind of, uh, walk around some, and then, you know, I, I deploy a lot of trail cameras. I think I mentioned you guys, you know, between me and another buddy, we have uh, 26 trail cameras already this year. And, uh, that's something that's really fun to do with my son, you know, to go and kind of explain to him why I'm putting certain cameras in certain locations. And really in the beginning of the year, it's just kind of trying to locate, locate an animal. And then from there, um, you know, we progress with the cameras kind of moving them in and like, I'll even kind of cluster them looking for one specific deer if I, if I can, depending on the that- time that I have.
2: Yeah, that that's actually what I was going to ask you is are you a guy that likes to, you know, are you deploying your cameras right now when they that's kind of where they're going to call home all fall or are you are starting to shift those after you found a target?
3: Yeah, I mean there's there's some certain core cameras, but then uh, I'll move them a lot, especially as as the fall progresses. Um, I try to stay on the outside first and then kind of move in from there. So a lot of edge stuff now, a lot of food sources, apples, water. I'm just looking for, uh, looking back for animals that I, you know, had found in the previous year. Did they make it? What do they look like this year? And then, based on what I find, um, a lot of them, you know, I spend so much time looking for their sheds in the winter. I have a pretty good idea of some of their tendencies already from years past, and then I'll I'll put that into play by either moving cameras or you know having stand locations already picked out. And then just waiting for conditions to be right or that camera picture to come come in. I do use cellular cameras. I know that some people maybe think there's some ethic things you know involved with that, but I, I live about three hours away from where I typically hunt, so it's not like I can jump in my truck and be in the wood lot that this big buck is in.
1: Right. Yeah. Now, Josh, what what type of what style of hunting? You know as, as an archer what what are you are you a mobile guy are you doing presets like where well, where's your bread and butter at
3: so so we have a certain amount of presets in big timber a lot of them are you know certain um draws in a ridge you know that are just good every year um some of them are you know we have some water holes that we've dug o- over the years are fixed up over the years and those are kind of like preset stands but if we need to, um, based on camera information, we'll uh, we'll go mobile and uh, and go in and, and try and do do things that way. Um, it all just depends on the situation. I'll hunt off the ground. I mean, I've I've done some crazy. I sat in a playhouse once, almost shot a really big. <laughs> yeah, like you got to you got to think outside of the box. Um, this was on the back up back side of a farm. They had built a playhouse this kid and it was on the outside bend of a creek that dropped down into a swampy marsh and uh, i'd gotten a picture of a really big buck so i'm like i'm just gonna sit in the playhouse and uh and I, he came through and i had a misfire on my muzzleloader because it was oh. kind of damp or whatever but it was one of those things but i was like it worked you know it worked just i just missed the shot and now i'm to the point where if i don't get the deer i don't you know years ago that would have destroyed me and now i just kind of laugh it off and you know try and move on from there because there's always going to be another out
1: yes very much and tell me this like you know you've you've killed a lot of deer a lot of big deer you got a lot on the wall and everything like that like you kind of you kind of set it right there you know as you got older and matured it was a little more or less or it was a little less of like i need to kill every year but more of like you know I don't know what you are at now just maybe more of the experience I'm not sure I'm not going to answer that for you but like how do you get out of that because you know how many there's a very high percentage of hunters that won't admit it but they have to kill their buck every year because the way the world is now it's like look what I can do on Instagram like look at the buck I can kill how do you get out of that to like more of just like who gives a shit and just I'm just do what I want to do
3: I would be lying if i didn't say that i still you know want to shoot a big buck every year and 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 show show it off i mean it's kind of fun but uh i i think i think you just mature um you know i'm 43 years old now i have three children uh my son is 15 years old so i'm setting an example for him i don't really want to you know be mr grouch or you know throw a big temper tantrum if i don't get my deer And, and it's a lot of fun like he's been hunting with me and he's, he's watched me screw up. Like I've missed deer, does, um, you know, I've done things that I going, um, that's another thing about being successful is you can't, you can't make a mistake and then be like, you know, just toss in your chips and be like, I quit white tail right. hunting. You got, you got to embrace the suck. You just got to keep going. Um, and you just, you just mentally got to be prepared for, the ups and downs. And I think as you get older, you kind of understand like, man, I had a really bad year, but next year it could be, it could be really good. You know, you just got to keep, keep on keeping, you know, keep going Yep. and try and and try and get better. Like if, if your weakness is your shot, then, then you work on your shot. If your weakness is getting into a location that, you know, where you get, get a shot, then you got to spend more time you know, scouting or more time trying to find new spots. I think a lot of people just get stuck on, I only have this 40 acres or I only have this 80 acres to hunt, but they never really put the effort into going, you know, explore. There's some good public land that's available to hunt or, you know, like, uh, you know, maybe try turkey hunting or something else first, and then progress to the deer, you know, like ask a landowner, can I turkey hunt, which I did this spring and I got all kinds of permission. And then, you know, you, build a relationship and maybe you can circle back and ask about deer deer is a little bit more popular but um maybe maybe you get on for deer you know you just got to get outside of your box and keep trying different things until you find that recipe that works for you
2: yeah i I couldn't agree more about you know like the asking permission thing because i almost live in the camp of like if if I don't own it or if I don't pay taxes on it, it it's never guaranteed the next year. So if I if I just get stagnant on one or two properties, that following year both of those could be gone, and I could I could be stuck in a pickle, you know. So it's constantly constantly trying to find new pieces. And I tell you what, and I bet you I bet you this is something that you've seen too, Josh. The more pieces I can access, and the more pieces I can walk, the more I learn about this game, and the more I can apply something from, you know, property a, I can apply that to property D. You know what I mean? Where it's like, I, I see something over there. I'm like, Shit, that's, that's working really well right there. Maybe I can try that at it on a different piece.
3: Yeah. Especially with the, the, the hilly stuff. Cause a lot of that applies, you know, wherever you go with all the wind, wind works, I mean, it's, it's slightly different. The wind rolls in those Hills some, but, um you know, once you start to understand thermals and, and and where deer like to traverse on those hillsides, you can kind of apply that same system to all kinds of different hilly topography and, and, you know, maybe staying out of, I typically, I like to say, if you hunt high, you get to watch them die. If you hunt low, you typically wave goodbye. So like I typically hunt higher on the hills where I I like like, that a lot. I don't do any of the scent stuff. I mean, I try and keep my gear clean, but I don't do any sprays or any shampoo or anything like that. I did all that crazy stuff when I was younger, and now I just strictly hunt access in the wind. I pay attention a lot to where I step and and where the prevailing wind is and where my thermals going. And I throw a lot of, like, if people don't know, younger hunters out there, go find yourself some milkweed and just constantly drop that milkweed. And if you're in a spot where that milkweed is kind of swirling or it comes back at you or it goes four different directions, that's probably not going to be a good spot to kill a big bug.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: That could change, you know, but, uh, you know, pay attention, pay attention to that wind and and how you're accessing your setups.
2: Now, when, when you're talking about, you know, some of the hill country or maybe even bluff country that you hunt, Josh, like what, what kind of elevation are we talking about in those locations? (laughs)
3: Uh, probably a change of a couple hundred feet. Um, so okay. west, western Wisconsin, mostly, um, some south central Wisconsin. So it's, I mean, there's times like some of those points are pretty steep where you're almost like on all fours to climb, you know, the, the grade. Um, but it doesn't have to be. Um, but I like, I like drainages and I like, you know, those steeper hillsides. Cause I think it gives the deer the advantage you know the wind mm-hmm. wind swirls a lot more and they get the age on them and then if you get the age you typically get bigger antlers so
2: yeah do you uh when when you're hunting that kind of terrain do you if you could have it your choice would you rather have their food up on the tops or down on the bottoms
3: uh i i like the top actually um because a lot of times they if you're if you're hunting on pressured deer a lot of times they focus on those points like big points that jut out from from ridge sides um, and and just think about it from a deer's perspective if you're kind of sitting on one of those points and you can see see down and then maybe the wind's coming at, at your back i mean that's a pretty pretty bulletproof um, you know setup to be bedded in and then if you you smell something you just dip down and then if you see something obviously you you know you can take the point out um, so a lot, of, a lot of times I'm focusing on, you know, and it doesn't have to be a huge point. I mean, this can just be little knobs that come off from ridge sides and you'll find a, you know, really warm bed in that area. And then what I try to do is I don't typically like hunt right over that, but I'll hunt, you know, I'll walk the trails kind of going off that bed and look for some kind of other topography piece that I, you know, that I think that I can get to without them seeing me. Where there's a good chance that you know the topography will, will bring them past me, if if they get up and they start moving around.
2: Yeah, I like that. I know I know Aaron; he's hunted some hill country like that kind of down in Ohio, though. And mm-hmm. but I I haven't got to hunt much country like that, and that's it's it's really interesting to me because it's it's so terrain based, right? And I I understand a lot of the the concepts of it, but the one thing that always runs through my head is you know because I've seen different scenarios where Either there's food on top and the food in the so it's like man, they, those are two totally different worlds right there.
3: Yeah, I wish I wish I could uh, be real, uh, real good at explaining it. But if you get on the right ridge, okay, so so the ridge tops like this, and you're sitting here and the wind's coming, you know, and it's blowing your scent over this ridge. These deer down here are going to think that the the wind is right for them to smell, but your wind is actually going over the top of them, so it's almost like you're you're invisible and I can't tell you how many mature bucks um, that I've had come into that type of setup where my wind is going out over that hill above their head. So as they're coming down, you know, on that ridge, they think like the wind is in their favor. They can smell. And they, and it's actually going over the top of them. And they walk right into the setup for usually it's a chip shot. Like I'm talking like 20. Yeah. And they're just or, clueless, clueless out here. If you do it, if, conditions are right
2: are you looking for a certain wind speed for that exact scenario
3: uh so yeah i mean there's certain things like <laughs> there's a lot of stuff to go with thermals um you know the thermals don't always act right and uh sometimes if you get multiple hillsides in an area to still swirl um but like a like a, a 5 to 10 mile an hour you know wind that's in the right direction and then uh a sunny day that hits that forest floor and warms it up. So the thermals are coming up and the wind's coming over the top and I'm positioned high on that ridge kind of leads to a situation where the deer using that ridgeline, thinking they're smelling everything below. And then they got the prevailing wind, but my wind is actually going over the top of them. And I know it's hard. It's hard to explain it. And people, if I could draw it and sit you down and explain it, it would be really easy to understand what I'm saying. But uh, you know, um, I think if you, look at like um uh what is it called hill country bucks or whatever i think dan and has got a video does a really good job and even that book by brad here that mapping trophy whitetails they talk about it in there too like how to use wind in that topography so that you know it's kind of going over the top of the animal that you're trying to hunt
2: yeah i i can imagine that first time actually trying to the hunt a buck like that, it, it almost just messes with your mind,
3: you know, until you actually see it work and then you're like, Holy shit, yeah. <laughs> they were right. This does work. Your, your wind is like actually blowing towards the trail that you're, you know, you're hunting, but it actually is going over there, over the top of them with the, with the thermal coming up and then like this
1: so yeah yeah, everybody that's listening that can't see josh doing his oh sorry no his his, no no i'm I'm just (laughs) going to try to paint the best picture and josh tell me if i'm completely wrong here but so everybody listening like josh is basically saying that he's hunting higher than the deer you know they're below him um you know not from the standards of him being 20 feet in a tree and them being going right underneath this tree he's talking about hunting a possible point a ridge you know, and the deer come funneling underneath him, like downwards. Because, and then the wind would be funneling like a like a vortex almost back over them, and he's killing them before. You know, they're not; they're just not getting your wind. It's it's brilliant,
3: <laughs> really. If if you hunt a lot of hills, you probably understand. You know, if you're successful, yeah. you know what I'm talking about. But I've it's it's like leeward side of the ridge. I've tried to explain this to so many people, and most people look at me like I'm just crazy but uh if you get those books or videos i think i think there's some illustrations in there you you can start to see what i'm saying and then if you start to play with the uh milkweed some i think you'll you'll see what i'm talking about like if you get higher on a ridge like that and the wind is such that your your milkweed is just blowing way out you know down the hillside before it starts to descend down so your your scent stream is way above the deer that are down below you on the ridge yeah
1: yeah now, Josh, is there ever, ever a situation that you're hunting in the bottom in home country?
3: I've tried it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've, I've ever shot one really low. Uh, man, it's funny because they'll, they'll be coming through the bottom and all of a sudden they'll stop and they'll look at you right in the tree. Like they know exactly where you are just because you're, you know, that scent profile is just kind of swirling around down there in the bottom and they, they just peg you. The big ones, I'm talking, most of the deer that I'm hunting, I'm really shooting for five-year-old plus deer. If it was four and it had 170 inch antler, then I'd probably make an exception. But mostly, most of the bucks I've shot in the last couple of years have been five, six, seven years old. Yeah. With pictures and all that jazz.
2: When you're talking about that scenario, and I know it's going to be very situational, is there any time as it gets right before dark with that thermal drop, does that almost become it can
3: get you yeah it okay. drop yeah it mark. so that's the risk you take a lot of i'd say a lot of my um later october stuff is and i don't hunt mornings a lot but that's when i start like around right around the 25th of october i'll start sitting mornings more back in the timber and these kind of setups with the rising thermal and you know the right the right wind to sit higher on the ridge and then maybe I'll make another move at roughly two o'clock in the afternoon to something different. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really working on that, that rising thermal and the the higher ridge, you know, cause typically they're a lot of times they're in the bottoms and they're, you know, they're coming up to bed on higher, higher ground. Typically. Um, sometimes they'll, they'll lay on the side of a drainage or something like that and they'll be down lower. But um a lot of times they're coming out of the bottoms and they're coming up the bed as well because they want to use the thermal
1: yeah now josh are you ever are you ever targeting like a buck bed in the morning like are you ever getting in there on that buck bed and predicting this j-hook into killing him before he gets into his bed
3: i've tried it's it's hard you know isn't
1: it happened like a zero uh, uh less than a uh point yeah. zero zero zero
3: percent i can tell you so i mean so i used to hunt we used to hunt this marshy brushy area and i first i would try like getting in there in the morning and i would be sneaking and that you know would turn them inside out so then i just started Well, what happens if i like gallop you know and like make more noise and sound like you know like a like a moving animal. So I've tried that. Like, it's just hard to get back into like in timber, that's kind of more open, no problem. But if you're hunting in thicker stuff or or marsh grass and that, you got to go And some of my friends do it. You got to go in super early to beat them back in there. Um, and it's, it's kind of a lower odds game. I like to play, I play the odds in everything that I do. Um, you know, I'm, I'm taking 26 cameras, all this information and I'm looking at what deer you know a mature buck that's moving more in the daily that has some daylight tendencies um what deer that am, am i more familiar with and i'm adding up all these percentages or little you know little bits of this and that and i'm trying to put myself in the spot that i think is the best chance to shoot a fully mature buck that's kind of what i do um and it usually you know if i if i don't get them i at least see them and i've had some heartbreaks on some really really good ones i missed. I missed one that my buddy found that was like 167 inches and I shot over his back. So, and then we we found him dead in a ditch the next year. Um, so, so that one, I remember very vividly watching my arrow just sail and just skim his back. And I don't know if, did he drop or did I just blow it? I don't know. But you know, so it's the ones that I missed that I remember like super vividly more so than, you know, the ones that are on the wall.
1: Yeah. Now, if cameras were taken away from you and everybody, but just you specifically, if you could not use cameras, how are you changing your style to be just as successful as you are now?
3: It, it would be, it would take a lot more time just to, to get visuals, you know, cause the other thing is like, I, I am a professional, you know, I got that commitment to, to the hospital um I'm a family guy. I got 3 kids. I got a wonderful wife, Lindsey. Um we like to travel together and you know be a good husband. So like what cameras have allowed me to do is gather a ton of information while I'm sitting, you know, at home and then just you know whenever I got a free moment, I can either look at those cellular pictures or you know I get a day off and I run around. I took my son the other day and we were driving all over the state. I think we drove for like almost five hours. We went West and then we went South and then we looped back and like, he was just exhausted just from driving, getting in and out, running cameras. Like, and I'm like, this is, this is how it is like every day, you know, like when I get into hunt mode, like it's exhausting. And then to try to be, you know, a professional and a family guy, um, cameras just really help you if you can afford to run them.
2: Someone asked me something similar to that before, Aaron, that they said, well, how would you, how would you gather, like, I, I'm kind of real big on historical data with bucks and certain spots, and someone asked me, well, how would you gather that without the cameras? And I said, the, the only way would be is you'd have to be out there all the time. That's, that's the only way you're going to gather that kind of information, just a ton of time, a ton of time in a tree or just a ton of time in the woods, just observing what the animals are doing, the the cameras, I, I'm in the same boat as you, Josh. Aaron and I talk about this a lot. The whole thing with the even like the cell cameras I hear people talk about, the one thing that the cell cameras do for me, it gives me more time at home. That That's what exactly what they do for me.
3: And then we can get into it too if you guys want to talk about it. But like certain box, as they get older, when they get past three and they, they're four, five, and six, I think they – they kind of start to get their rutting zones almost like a turkey strutting zone. Like they start having tendencies of things, places like to be come breeding time just because they've probably been successful doing it and they're still alive. So they'll, you know, they'll venture into those certain areas in the timber where they've, you know, had success or CRP or what whatever kind of topography you have. So really pay attention to those historical pictures a lot of times a mature buck will show back up into an area roughly around the same time. And it's crazy, like almost to the day, sometimes, um, in certain areas I've ha- I've seen that over and over and over again, over the years, like, uh, you know, running off cameras, like you start seeing tendencies of a certain deer that's gonna like to rot in a certain area.
1: Now that makes total sense because I agree a hundred percent on that with you, but now let's, let's, I want to throw another hypothetical in there. Now you have these rut zones. Do you see, maybe it's not the same buck every year doing it, but do you see like a rut zone that could be like multiple mature bucks year after year? Like it's just the spot that it just, it just congregates them there.
3: And I have, I have a specific spot like that in Wisconsin and it's a Creek bottom. And uh, there are some higher spots around the Creek that, you know, I tend to sit on, but Like it's basically does for September and October, maybe, uh, you know, a buckle cruise through there once in a while, mostly dark, but come the rut, it's like a super highway and and deer just start running this creek. And I get just crazy amounts of bucks that I've never had pictured, like they just randomly show up, you know, cruising this creek, checking the oxbows for does. Um, So that's, you know, you can find those. I don't know, like a, a rut funnel or whatever you want to call them, but there's are certain areas that are definitely ruttier than others. Um, and, and grass is another one. Uh, deer love to have like stem count cover around them. So like CRP or marsh grass, but they also like that, you know, so they can visually see, see a doe running or whatever. So they like to chase a lot of times in marsh grass, CRP, you know, br- like low brushy areas where they can still have a visualization, but they feel safe because they got something around them um, to protect them from predators yeah that
2: that's a great point josh when you talk about that 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 rut area along that creek question for you on that are they running just kind of up and down that creek or if you have you noticed like are they running with the way the water runs or the against the water like are they using that that the, the way the water runs for like scent purposes
3: yeah. So like, it's, it's really swirly down in there. Um, that's where I rely on a, a lower wind day and I'm re- really relying on a, a up thermal, you know, like I want a bluebird sky day with lighter winds so that, you know, as I drop my milkweed, it's actually, it'll actually rise. That's what I'm looking for when I'm hunting a location like that would be prime um, for hunting something like that. And what I typically see is, uh, you know, along these creeks, a lot of times trees will fall because of erosion. And that's exactly where the does like to, you know, they like to tuck into these oxbows and other areas of creeks and they lay right in those trees, almost like a rabbit would. And these bucks know exactly where those spots are and they come in and they, you know, they just go and they like scent check them as they're going along the creek.
2: Yeah, I like, I like that a lot, man. It's, yep. it's the creeks are always so interesting to me, you know, the the depth of the water or the speed of that water moving, you know, it's like, I, I can see how animals use that to their advantage. Now, Josh, to that same
1: scenario there, okay, bluebird sky day, wind is not, you know, it's really not that much of a wind. You got a lot of rising thermals and, and you know, and you feel like you're almost bulletproof. But let's say, let's say it's getting closer to dark, okay, it's starting to cool off a little bit and things might start pulling down. What, what, do you, what happens there? Like, wh- how do you treat that? Do you get the hell out of there or is it like, you know, how do
3: you, how do you treat that scenario? Um, it depends on if, uh, you know, it depends on what you got, you know, like, uh, I'll say this too, for public land, like if, if you got 15 spots scouted out that you think are good, or you got multiple bucks, then you can afford to roll the dice and blow that up. But if you're, if you're in Michigan and you only got access to 40 acres, you know, maybe you want to play that a little bit safer so that maybe you get two or three hunts, you know, like you can really burn up, a. 40 acre piece in a quick hurry, um, you know, with the, you know, your scent just swirling around in there, accessing it the wrong way. Um, what I tell people a lot of times is, you know, if they don't get you while they're in there, what deer do all night is they walk all over in there and they constantly are sniffing around, like, and they're curious, right? Like you'll see it with your cameras. You just place the brand new camera and you'll see the deer actually following your, you know, they're following your boot track and then all of a sudden they get a picture of themselves. And they're then they're staring at the camera, but they're they're curious. They, they want to know like why why was there a human in here? Where did he go? Like they you know they're very inquisitive animals. They're you know they they're just curious. I don't think David, they can re- I don't think they can reason like oh he's in here you know like he's coming to hunt me. They they don't do that. But they're you know they're they're aware of predators. So like if they. Yes. They're walking around in the evening and they smell that and it's off there that's noted you know
1: yep david do we dare bring up how you got backtracked the other day <laughs> <laughs> no it's well
2: it 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 it's exactly what josh is talking about um I'll, I'll just tell the story of it real quick so i was headed back into this this island that i i know about deep into a michigan swamp and to get back to the island it's it's pretty nasty. I mean it it's it's wet, even though we've been in a drought and you know, like the swamp grass and the, the cattails, they're they're taller than I am. You know, I'm 5'8", so it's it's real nasty back in there. And as I just was making my way to the edge, I jumped a buck that was bedded just on the edge of it, you know, and, and as pressure comes along during hunt season, he'll he'll make his way inside there, but just for the summertime, he's on the outside edge. And he just stood up, and we just kind of had to stare down, and I I got a real good look at you know kind of what he was, and so that's a pretty good buck, and and eventually I just kept pushing along, and and he ran off, and I went in there, and I knew that I knew there was a scrape on this island, and I know going in there like I probably wouldn't get a whole lot of pictures until probably hardhorn you know September then October back in there, hung this camera over this scrape, and I I shit you not it wasn't. I don't know, a hour and a half, two hours later, his ass is standing right there. And, and Aaron, I show Aaron the picture and he goes, Man, that's a good buck. And I says, Yeah, but we have an issue. And he said, What's the matter? I goes, He just backtracked me in there. I said, I jumped that buck. And once it got quiet in there, he let it sit for an hour or two and he backtracked me. And someone asked me, My, my other brother, Corey, he said, well, do you think he backtracked you through the water? I said, No, it's not the water. It's everything that was touching me on my sides going in there. And that's and he did that buck did that exact same thing. And guess what? He hasn't been back since. You know what I mean? Like it's gonna be a minute and, and he he backtracked me right to that scrape, then right to a camera that's six and a half foot up in the in the tree, because the very last picture I can just see is the tips of his tines tilted back right at the base of the tree where it's like that some of a bitch tracked me all the way through that swamp. I guarantee he did. And I tell you in to Josh's point, that stuff happens all fall long, all during the dark of the night. When when you're done hunting and you go home for the night, guess what? I think I think there's a lot. The the most mature animals in, say, your square mile or your piece of public land, they I think they do a lot of backtracking. I mean, how about how about, you know, for all the listeners, think about the times you're hunting and you and may have a fawn come right down your trail, right to the sticks on your tree and smell it
3: like they, they, they freaking know, man. So that gets to the, the point too. Like when you're hunting that Creek, you gotta, if you can, you know, think about your access and if you can keep your boots in the water and you're not, you know, a lot of times I, I do wear gloves on my hands. Cause I think the oil on your hands is another big giveaway, um, you know, I try to I try not to touch like foliage or sticks and stuff like that. And if I can keep my feet in water or a nasty ditch, like if you got a drainage ditch in a in a ridge, like I'll climb up the ridge in that drainage ditch and then pop out and and try and get so things like that. Just just thinking about where you're putting those boot tracks and where you're you know you're leaving that trail. Um, if you watch anything by. Uh, Wes Whitetail or Bill Winkie, he talks about that a lot. Like if you see him going to timber, he'll use uh, ditches, creeks, uh, railroad tracks are another one you can do, logging roads, you know, anything that's kind of cleared out that you're not going to be touching a lot of underbrush and foliage. And, you know, I, I would recommend like covering your hands if, if you, you know, if it's doable for you. Not yeah, having you, a- you c- oil. Well, you know. And you got
2: to, and like you said, like you got to think, you walk in and where your hands are is not that far off from height-wise from where their nose is. You know what I mean? So like like my example, I just talked about going through that swamp grass. Even though it's taller than me, the stuff kind of where my elbows and my hands are touching, that's kind of where their nose is at coming through that. And they're and you know, anytime I'm breaking something or any any grass is pushed to the side, they're smelling all of that stuff. And that, that I tell you what, I... Bill Winky actually another book. He's got a a, a, a smaller book than like the Map and Trophy Whitetails. He's got a book about you know access through ditches and whatnot. It's it's a real small book. I don't know. It's probably a decade old. That was a really good book too.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. and, I mean, if you if you're not familiar with that, just you know, YouTube him and you'll find some of those where when he pushes back into timber, which he doesn't often do, because he was you know he had private land and he was trying to keep those animals safe within his timbered land but like when he had to actually go in there like he was really careful on the access that he used to get into those spots
1: yeah that's that, those are all good points right there so josh i i need to know like you know what is out of all the deer you've killed what is like the number one deer where you sit back and you're like i beat you I beat, I know mean, you probably got a lot, but what is the one that sticks out the most and what's the story on it?
3: Uh, it was, uh, it was, a. Uh, so I got out of college, finally, you know, had an income so that I could maybe, you know, the dream is to own a piece of, uh, hunting land, but I, you know, I was never there with student loans and stuff like that. And then a young family. So I actually leased a, a hundred acre property that I could kind of, get into the food plot game a little bit you know so i got to learn all about trying to be a farmer and that's very difficult if nobody's ever done <laughs> um there's so many variables and you know soil conditions and all that stuff and weeds and different you know uh, glyphosate and different chemicals and stuff like that so i had this chunk of land and uh at least it it had to be like six or seven years and then again you know as one of those were just too good to be true and it got kind of it went bye-bye but I did shoot a handful of really good deer off of it and one of them I call him Chubbs he was a giant uh eight pointer body wise like he was massive um probably man I don't know 250 on the hoof maybe and this was in central Wisconsin so it wasn't like a real hilly area where they you know get mega monster bucks like he was he was the boss buck in that area And he lived in this small, like brushy, grassy area with, with minimal trees. And I got pictures of him for years. And, uh, actually I'll, I'll send you guys the the photos and you know, you can choose to post them or not on your, on your Instagram or whatever. But I, we got the sheds off of them, I think for six years before I killed them. Just about every shed for six years. Wow. It was, uh, like almost a, a thunderstorm in October. When I knew, like, the, I knew where he was because I saw him, like, in this brushy stuff earlier in the morning. It was late October, and I saw him in there, so I knew he was still in there. Then I used the advantage of the storm and the wind to get right, like, right in on him. And I climbed up with a lone wolf uh, uh, portable, and I put it like probably I could reach and grab it with my hand that high in this little tree. And uh, I started calling, you know, just like grunting and bleating, and he came just bull rushing in there. And I put an arrow in him, but then it started raining and I didn't have a blood trail. And I wish to God that we had, you know, drones or dogs back then, but, um, I killed him. It just took me probably like six days to find him. And I found him with birds out in the marsh, but eventually I found him and that was, uh, that was one that I, you know, there was many times before that where he got me or, um, I missed him odor. uh, you know like 150 yard shot which probably was on the outside edge of my range um like he just lived in a heavily hunted area and he survived for eight years that deer was i don't i don't know it just it was one that i you know i hunted and then one year i thought i really had him you know i found sheds in his bed and i kind of knew his tendencies and then he busted his rack so then then he got to wait another year you know and It was just so fun like it was a long long story that you know finally ended with me he's hanging on the you know the skulls on the wall but um it's more the memory and the the hunt you know probably sat for him if i had to guess i probably hunted him 35 times 35 different sits days you know wow specifically for that one deer over over awesome yeah from five six seven and eight like i hunted him every year and he, he he won years do
2: you think that he spent a a majority of his time in that little that little yeah. section like that,
3: Josh? I think he primarily lived within forty five acres of marsh grass and brush, and rarely like would come out and eat. But then he'd go, he'd be back in there before it was dark, before it was darker, before it was light. You know, he uh, or before it was light, yeah, he would get back in there in the you know middle of the night and get bedded up before anybody yeah. had no, and then yeah. there, but uh, during the rut, that's when he was a little bit more vulnerable, kind of moving around on the edges more. But the, there was plenty of does in there, too. He didn't have a lot of reason to come out of there. So, Yeah, yeah. Well,
2: I I, I tell you what, Josh, before we run up on time tonight, there, there was something that you and I talked about two weeks ago that, that that really, really caught my attention. And you talked to me about, you know, utilizing a network of, of good friends for hunting. Yeah. And I think in, in today's world, and I I'm as guilty as anyone, you know, like keep things so private. My circle seems to be so small and you are like one of the first people I've ever heard that kind of really talked about that. So I, I'd love to kind of hear kind of what your take is about that whole idea.
3: Yeah. You gotta have, I mean, I, I put trust in my friends and and I, you know, I, I hope they put trust in me, but I've learned like through fishing and hunting, like you only going to learn so much on your own, you know, like if you can find somebody else that's successful and kind of watch them, whether it be in finances and work, um, lifting weights, what, whatever, whatever it is that you have an interest in, like you just, you kind of study them almost and figure out like, what are the key details of like, and one body that like, to this day, I use the same trail cams trail camera system that, Kind of, i learned watching him i'm like you can't do that with trail cameras you can't get that aggressive you can't cluster them you can't do all this stuff and he's like watch and he did and then i'm like okay it does work so then i started doing it and uh you know that's just one thing that i learned from him i learned from another the shed hunting friends like you know just to explore to continually look for new things and and like how to shed hunts like shed hunting's a, a sport of its own like where to look, you know, key, key areas that to key in on to have success. Like I learned a lot from those guys. Uh, another guy that I gave you the name of, um, I learned from him just, uh, you know, like to, to hunt basically some days for 13, 14 hours, like just never give up. Cause it could happen at any time, you know, to go really, go really hard. Like you're there, you're there for a four day weekend. Why not just spend it all in the woods? You know, like why even come out, just move you know, I mean, let's, let's not sit, although we did sometimes in September sit all day, but like, let's, let's, let's hunt. We're here to hunt. Let's hunt, you know, let's spend the time. And if we're not hunting, let's scout. If we're not scouting, let's look for another property. So I had all these buddies and, you know, and then I've learned certain things from each of them that I've kind of put, put into my game and I, I think i got a, a recipe now that works pretty good for me um and that that could be very different for for you or for aaron you know like everybody's got to find out their own way of doing things and then you know just work at getting better at it
2: yeah i i love that you know and that almost plays into you know earlier in the conversation we talked about what it you know where the where the guys kind of have that disconnect of being a consistent killer and in hearing what you just talked about there josh is. I think one of the key things is is being open minded. You know what I mean, not being so boxed in and and just stuck in your ways, you know, we're like if if you can keep an open mind about, you know, how other people's find success because that is one thing for sure. There's there's more than one way to skin this cat. There's no doubt about it and having that open mind. I mean, just like you said like you you are really heavy on a on a particular trail camera tactic, but then you just said like, "Hey, I learned this tactic" From my buddy you know what i mean we're like i told him it wouldn't work and your buddy's like Bullshit, watch this and now like it was so good that you adapted that into your right. arsenal Now, i, lo- I right. love that
3: yeah so it's just i mean you just, that's a really fun thing about hunting is you really never know it all like you can you can always learn something new there's a new topography you know there's i've tried going out west and that's a whole nother ball of wax you know like these guys that just, you know, go, go from the flatland and they go out and they kill an elk like that. That to me is impressive. It's not easy to do. I've tried it and uh, it's a whole, a whole another thing to learn. Bear hunting is another thing to learn. Like my son and I kind of gotten a little bit more interested in, you know, doing some of that in Wisconsin and it's just keeping things fresh, you know, like, you know, continually trying to learn new things and try new things and you know, obviously, you'll you'll deploy the tactics that have always worked, but let's let's try and do something something new and see how that works. A lot of experimentation.
1: Yeah, and I will say, I want I want to point out one thing here. What Josh has been saying throughout this whole podcast, if and if nobody's picked up on it, uh, you need to go back and listen to it to pick up on it. But there's something that you've been hinting on or hitting on that doesn't take any skill for anybody. And it's the time that you put in. Yeah. Now, I get that everybody's situation can be a little different. You know, you, you could have three kids like Josh, and you could live three hours from your farm, and you might only be able to do it on a Saturday, one Saturday a month. But when you get that Saturday, use it to the fullest advantage. Like the time you're allotted, use it. It doesn't take any skill, any skill set to have it, it's just a mindset. And if I was to ask Josh, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but all the, you know, majority of the deer you've killed has probably come just from the time you've put in. Right. You right. know, you don't trip into one fifties every single season. So it's the time you put in. And that is one of the biggest things that I've taken from this whole thing that anybody listening to this podcast can do is just use the time you're allowed and use it wisely.
3: Right. Yeah. Just, just optimize your opportunities and, um, and you can, like, if you can't do it all in one year, you can build year to year, you know, like, like I said, I just, I think I jump started. I jumped the curve a little bit because I spent so much time in those first four years. I mean, I was, I say it to this day, I was super selfish with my free time. I, I was still dating my wife at the time. And like, I, there are many times where she was upset because I was just dark to dark in the, in the woods.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you definitely got to find your 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 system and how how your life works. I'm lucky lucky enough to find I found mine, and so those like kind of rocky roads are kind of over. <laughs> so <laughs> the quicker you can find that, uh, the better off your relationship and your marriage and your you know being a father is going to be.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean that's a big part of it. You know, my job and my wife and my family allow me the time. So yep. If you, if you don't have the time, it's, it's, it's hard. If you mm -hmm. want to, if you want to do it consistently for sure.
2: Yeah. We, and we talk about this a lot, you know, very often is, is how a lot of this, you know, a lot of guys go out and you know, they want instant success, you know, or, you know, when you we're near hunt, some of these, these bigger, more mature bucks, man, you got to play the long game also, you know, and like, just because, you know, you have to be willing to put in the work this year or something that may pay off in two to three years down the road. You know, you have to be okay with that. That That I, is the long game.
3: Yeah, I used to look at my one buddy, and, uh, you know, he would let 150-inch deer go just because it was four years old, and I'm like, I'll, I'll never get to that point, you know. I would <laughs> just, but now I've done it now. I've let, you know, probably two right around 150 inches walk in the last couple of years. Like, that, that's just a different, like, you know, you know you've progressed when you don't have to – to kill that animal um and you're willing to roll the dice on the chance that that 150 might turn into a 170 next year you know um and you can't you can't get the 170 if you shoot the 145 150 and it's it's hard to do and we get that there's a progression there but um if you can get a locale that that happens then then it gets really fun when you when you have really upper end bucks you know when you have a chance at a legit 170 inch plus deer that that ups the level of excitement when you're sitting in the timber.
1: That is the truth, man. Well, Josh, I want to, I'll be conscious of your time and, and thank you very much for coming on tonight and doing this. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. And, you know, and to, to pick a brain of a guy like yourself and that does things on a very high level. I'm very appreciative of that. So thank you very much.
3: Yeah. You bet guys. It was a good chat. And if anybody wants to look me up, it's just JJ beaman 33 on Instagram. Got any questions or you want to look at more pictures or whatever. Be my guest. Awesome, man. All right. Thanks, thanks guys. for
1: coming on, Josh. Thank you.